we all want the best for our own children first. And so I, I hear that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I feel like New York City has to move towards a more inclusive public system in which all kids have real access to high quality schools. And there isn't this segmentation the way that we see it. So I think, you know, the changes to a high school placement have been, to me, seems very positive. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Panina Salgado. Unless you grew up in one of the five boroughs of New York City, you probably have no idea the challenges involved in getting into public high school. For many students, the process begins years in advance, and not unlike applying to college, kids and families consider a variety of schools. Some of those schools require an exam, while others require an interview or portfolio. Beyond that, students hoping to attend top-ranked schools like Stuyvesant High School and Bronx High School of Science often enlist the help of private tutors and counselors. But this complicated process has left the most disadvantaged students behind. That's why, just before leaving office, former Mayor Bill de Blasio passed legislation to change the application process with the goal of making top schools like these more accessible. But now, some parents are threatening to leave the school system entirely and move out to the suburbs. Today, Epicenter's Mitra Kalida speaks with Natasha Wariku about her new book titled Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. The book also explores competition in suburban high schools with growing number of Asian Americans. The two also discuss the New York City high school admissions process, the danger of catering to advantaged families, and how we can move towards a more diverse education system. Natasha, if we could just begin by telling me about your book. Sure. Yeah, well, so thanks for having me. This book is about a community that has a large and growing Asian American population. And I was interested in trying to understand what happens when you have an immigrant group that's a racial minority that not only kind of achieves parity with the kind of majority group whites in the United States today, but outperforms them in certain domains. So, you know, I was interested in this because I started seeing Asian Americans doing quite well academically, right? So, you know, the spelling bee winners are almost always Indian American. Asian Americans have higher average SAT scores than all other racial groups, including whites. All of these measures, you know, in New York City, of course, the exam schools, a lot of Asian Americans making it into those schools by doing well on the exams. And so I wanted to understand how both how they navigate these kinds of places and how whites respond and, and look at it in one small community. So I kind of looked for a suburban community. There are many around the country that had a large and growing Asian American population and one in which Asian American kids, all kids are doing well in these kind of very affluent suburbs, but Asian American kids are doing better academically. Of course, there are other domains as well. And that's kind of what led me to this study. And what I found was that there are these kind of unspoken tensions around achievement, what it means, what's the right way to parent and help your kid get ahead. So Asian American, Asian immigrant parents tended to focus a lot more on academics because that's what they knew, right? They came from education systems in which your academic performance, really your performance on a standardized test was the sole determinant of how you would do in life. And they kind of brought that to the U.S. context and really focused on academics. And if their kids were kind of, you know, struggling or, you know, had too much on their plate, they would tell them, okay, you need to quit your extracurriculars. 
Whereas the white parents used the word balance a lot more and talked about, obviously they wanted their kids to do well as all parents do academically, but they also wanted to make room for extracurriculars. And, you know, it wasn't that they just did different things and that was okay. There was a little bit of a tent of tension around, you know, well, if Asians are sending their kids to extracurricular math, now my kid doesn't feel smart because they don't get into honors math because so many kids are doing extra math that you kind of have to do that to get placed in honors. And the Asian families were a little like, well, yeah, that might be true. But like, if my kid doesn't play little league and club soccer and all of this from a young age, they won't get into onto like even the JV soccer team. So you do you, we'll do us. And so there, there was a sort of different way of thinking about differences among parents as well. But so, so, so I try to highlight some of these tensions and talk about what that means for kind of the process of what immigration scholars call assimilation or integration or kind of race relations in communities like this. So you focused on the suburbs, which, uh, you know, I wrote a book about yep. suburbia in yeah. 2003. So this is a subject near and dear in New York City, which has such different populations and policies than the suburb you describe. However, I'd say we're very influenced by the suburbs because one constant threat, as long as my children have been in public school and even before that, was the threat of losing population to the suburbs, to the types of schools that you're writing about. And that's why we need an insert here gifted education, K through 12, specialized high schools, sports teams, robust extracurriculars, PTAs with million dollar budgets, right? And so the list goes on and on in terms of turning urban schools into a bit of a wish list of what the suburbs have, but, and this is what I want to ask you about, but only for certain people and certain schools. And so I wondered if you could talk through the lens of this book and what you've just researched, what you make of this system in New York City, the one that we're mired in right now, right this moment, is the specialized high school versus change in high school admissions. Parents, as you and I are talking, are gaming their chances off of wait lists. There are people who are moving to the suburbs who I know because their kid did not get into a choice high school. And there are others who are shifting to private school or Catholic school. So this is a real, real kind of moment because they just shifted some policies that have led to this fallout. Yeah, this is a great question. So I'm a New York City public school, former New York City public school teacher. So these questions are near and dear to my heart. I remember, you know, right out of college, I was like, 22 or 23, I was teaching at a school in district three, where, as you know, had very controversial, but had selective, we would select students. And I remember interviewing these 10 year olds and then having to fill out this form. And I was like, this feels wrong. Like, how can I say whether this child deserves or doesn't deserve a spot in our school? And I remember a girl saying, well, my parents told me if I don't get into, you know, they're 10, they're like pretty over it. She was like, well, if I don't get into this school, then I'm going to be going to Catholic school. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with that information? (laughs) You know, is it important to keep her in the public system? So we, so anyway, you know, I think this is really just to say, I've been thinking about this question for many years. And I, you know, I think I've come to conclude that there is a balance between completely catering to advantaged families 
who will just have other financial resources to be do, to be able to do other things like move to the suburbs, like go to private school or Catholic school on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, I think the promise of integrated schools, class integrated and racially integrated schools is real and important. So I think there's this balance. I mean, I, I feel like in New York City, the changes have been positive. Like I think the changes to admissions, while there's always those people caught in a transition who are like, wait, I thought it was going to be this, now it's going to be this. And, you know, I feel for them on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, there've been so many families that have been completely shut out of a lot of these schools for decades since choice became like such a big part of New York city school placement that I kind of feel like, well, you know, these families have been shut out for so long. Like it's hard to, it's hard to complain, right? It's hard to, you know, it's, Right. What we really pride ourselves on committing journalism of action. And there were some anecdotes in your book that just make me wonder what is the right thing to do. So one that I just referenced is parents who are jockeying to get their kids off of wait lists and maybe putting in a word with a principal or, you know, fighting for their child. And you have similar examples of, I didn't get into a math class, but if you talk to the department head, they can let your kid through, which gave you a certain reaction. I just wondered if you could talk about that. And then what is the right behavior to practice to not perpetuate inequity? Yeah. When parents are advocating for their own child, you know, we can critique it and show that the way that that advocacy reproduces inequality, but it's going to be very hard to change that behavior because at the end of the day, Like that's kind of our instinct, right? And so I think what we can do is set up policies that don't reward that behavior, right? So this school actually got a lot more strict about placement, right? So there was that one mom who kind of went to the school and then, you know, the school says, okay, your son can go to honors math. She told me about that happening in middle school, but at the high school, the the teachers would tell you what level they thought you should be in next year, right? Should you be an honor? Should you be an AP? Should be college prep? Should be remedial? And you could then go and appeal that decision, but those appeals were not always granted. And I, you know, I remember meeting this one young man who he had arrived to the U.S. from China, I think less than two years before I met him. He was a high school student and he wanted to take AP chemistry, was not placed in it, appealed, didn't place it. So he was actually doing a class outside of school to learn the material um, while he was, and he was going to take the test, right? But the school didn't let him do it. And I, I get that decision just to say that they did become more strict about placement. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a good thing as long as you're, you're, you're looking at equity, you're making sure that kids who are, you know, from working class families, Black families, Latinx families who are historically underrepresented in those classes are are being kind of encouraged to take the more advanced classes. So I think you have to shape a school system and policies such that that like, yo, I know this principal or maybe can you help me get in the door that that kind of side hustle doesn't doesn't get rewarded because we know that certain like advantaged families are able to do that more than than disadvantaged families. You mentioned Black and Latinx families, and I wanted to ask what the role of those students is both in the suburb you mentioned, because it sounded like there was some busing going on still. Yes. Yep. Also, just even in your own process of writing this book, I know I went through this because I focused on Indian families um, in my book. And I think about this a lot as someone who writes about the Asian experience or the immigrant experience, how you strive to be inclusive and not make it appear that these are communities that somehow don't care about education because study after study shows, 
I mean, Latino families care more about education than immigration, right? And yet they don't make an appearance in many of these suburbs, at least in kind of large demographic trends. So, so tell me, tell me your calculations there. Yeah. I mean, the way I try to talk about this is to say that I start from the premise and whether I'm doing research or like working with educators or teaching students that like all families care about education and want to do well in school. And again, like you said, like there's a lot of research that shows this, but if we start with that premise and then, you know, then we'll say, okay, well, but I see these things. I see that there aren't very many uh, black or Latinx families living in the suburb. Then we have to ask, well, why is that? Right. And I think this, this community, the easy answer is, well, because they can't afford it. Right. And it's sort of self-perpetuating. And now there are very few black and Latinx. There are some families in this community, but you know, do you want to go and live in a place, you know, as a person of color, I know that, you know, I thought about that a lot. We were trying to figure out where to live. I don't want my kids to be the only ones. And so then you don't want to move to a place like that, right? Because you also recognize you want to protect your, your child's emotional well-being. You know, when you see different levels of achievement, if you, we assume kids want to do well, parents want to do well, then it's a harder question of like, well, then what is going on? Is it about resources? Is it about cultural know-how? Is it about, you know, in New York City, is it about like awareness of and access to these like tutoring centers? Is it, you know, so there, there are all of these things that come into play that we need to better understand, like what is different. In the, in the book, I talk about um, a concept from a sociologist, Anne Swidler, called cultural repertoires, that we have these kind of schema in our head for like how to get ahead and what to do in certain situations. And we develop those ideas from like our childhood. What did our parents do? What do we see our cousins doing or other kids in the neighborhood or in our school? And that helps us make sense of like how to navigate, you know, the world. And so when you don't know anybody who say has gone on to a, you know, a residential four-year college or works in a um, professional job, like you may want those things and want to work hard, but you don't know what's that, what does that pathway look like? What do I need to do? And I think that is where these differences come into play. It's not because people don't want the same things. Yeah. I wanted to ask you just a few more questions. I'm cognizant of time. One is about the rising number of Asians who are poor yeah. and whether um, you're seeing chain migration in the suburbs, meaning people sponsoring family members and so forth. Is that affecting the types of people you're seeing in schools. And then of course, in New York City, Asians are among the fastest growing poor immigrant population, whether you have any thoughts on the extra support that might be needed for those families, do they get lumped into a lot of what you're describing? And, you know, is that unfair as well? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I always try to point this out that, you know, I've written this book that's mostly about highly skilled migration, but absolutely Asian Americans are so diverse and increasing also the the fastest growing undocumented population as well in the country. And so the suburbs are interesting because this community, definitely the, the English language learner population has grown over time. But I think because it's so expensive to live in the community, there aren't as there aren't that many working class or poor families. I will say that, you know, from a kind of researcher perspective, one of the, I think, important questions is actually when you you see Asian American academic performance, it's not as tied to social class as it is for every other racial group, which is to say that 
working class and poor Asian Americans do remarkably well educationally. And the sort of the gap between racial groups is actually much bigger with Asians ahead of all other racial groups uh, among kind of economically disadvantaged families compared to like places like where I did this research, where there's still that gap, but it's not as big. And so I don't think we have good, you know, I think there's a lot of theories about why that is, but I think it's an important question. You know, is it that they're part of this larger group that creates these institutions that then enables them to, you know, go to Saturday math class because it's not so expensive. It's already there. And it's just part of the, is it that they're coming from these education systems that are largely testing based? So I don't, I don't think we have a good explanation, but the other thing I want to point out is that while this is a well-off suburb, suburbs are so diverse in the United States, right? We think of, they used to be like mostly white and well-off. Now there's some Asians in there. That's not, that's never been what suburbs are. And it's, it's certainly not the way they are today, right? There's increasing diversity in suburbs. More immigrants live in suburbs now than live in urban areas. Right. And the same for African-Americans, actually. Yeah, I was about to say African-Americans as well, right? And, you know, you see this all over New York City, right? And I think a lot of these suburbs are experiencing new migration. And I think those are the places that really need to shore up, you know, develop higher English language learner uh, ELL teachers, right? Or building in those supports that they don't have, as opposed to a place like Queens, which has New York City schools have a lot of supports for. Although uh, it's still the question we get all the time is, can you help my child access more tutoring because English is not their first language? And even though the school must provide that, it still feels like there's an absence of really getting the parents who call us really want their kids to catch up to everybody else. Yeah. If they're calling us with that, it means that they've tried other means, including the school. And so that does feel like something. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about critical race theory and how this is playing out in the suburbs that are the types you're writing about because they are diverse. Yeah. Seem like the whites who live there might be more liberal. Is that true? Is that a, Wrong yeah. assumption. Tell me how this is playing out. Yeah. So uh, the suburb that I studied, and I think a lot of suburbs like this, very liberal identified, certainly aligning with the Democratic Party, anti-Trump. But you know, this suburb in particular identifies as pretty liberal. So it's interesting because the CRT stuff in the media really has come up in the last like you know, I think it's been like a year um, it's been brewing. And so it wasn't really on the radar, I think, when I was doing this research, um, which ended before the pandemic. But I think even at that time, there's attention to race and the need to sort of deal with race. For me, the worry is when you the, the kind of state legislation that is being passed in some places, proposed in others to really muzzle teachers and teachers' ability to talk about the history of the United States and the role that race played in it. Because from my perspective, we need a lot more of kind of discussion about what is the history of race in this country that goes beyond you know, slavery and the civil rights movement, which obviously are important, but, you know, what are all of these, these kind of policies in the 20th century that are supposedly race neutral, that kind of shut African-Americans out in particular and others as well from the American dream. And, you know, even suburbs like this were created as places for upper middle-class whites to leave the city at a time of school integration. And then they passed law, municipal laws to have a kind of minimum housing lot size so that, poor working class, even middle class people couldn't afford to live there. They didn't allow 
the building of multifamily homes. So all of these laws that are like right in their back door to understand the way that that is tied up with the racial history in the United States. I feel like we need a lot more of that. And yeah. some of these state legislators are moving, le- legislatures are moving in the exact opposite direction. You can find Natasha's book, Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools at most major bookstores or by clicking the link in our show notes. And for more news on what's going on in New York City schools, make sure you sign up for our newsletter, The Unmuted, also linked in our show notes. For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on our website, linked to in our podcast description.